welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, friends. Today's guest is Chris Spire. Chris Spire, a 19-year Major League veteran and three-time All-Star. Played for a whole bunch of teams, primarily the San Francisco Giants and Montreal Expos. Of course he played for the Montreal Expos. It's required by law that he played for the Montreal Expos. Anyway, uh, Spire, a fascinating character. We had a really good chat. All kinds of stuff. He broke in on a team that had Willie Mays and Willie McCovey on it. So I asked him what that was like. Lessons he can learn from superstars like that. Talking about those Expos teams, those great Expos teams in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, the guy was on the World Series team in 89. He came back to the Giants for the Bay Birds World Series. So that earthquake, uh, lots of interesting stuff. And also some interesting stuff toward the end. He was a longtime coach in the major leagues. He coached just recently last season. And he argues that players were kind of left to their own devices back in the day. They were not micromanaged, and they had to learn a lot of stuff today, whereas everything is so mapped out, in part due to analytics, but in part due to other stuff, that players are kind of given less leeway to freelance. And uh, so he had an interesting lesson about what he did as a minor league manager to try to get the players to kind of learn their own skills and their own ways of problem solving, which I thought was really, really interesting. So uh, enjoy the chat with Chris Spire. Shout out to uh, the great Amy Kaufman, as always, for helping with the producing side and setting things up. And also to Gar Rhinest, the batting stance guy. Uh, Gar grew up with Justin Spire in the Bay Area. Uh, Justin is Chris's son and uh, has known the Spires for his billion, zillion years. And when I finally met Chris a few weeks ago, I exchanged texts with Gar. And uh, yeah, there you go. One big reunion. Uh, and follow the batting stance guy on Instagram, won't you? It's about as good as an Instagram account as you can get. And Gar is a peach of a human being as well. Also peachy is this week's sponsor. That's called the Segway Friends. And that is SeatGeek. SeatGeek is a longtime sponsor of the John Carey Podcast. It's the best place to buy and sell tickets to everything you could possibly want. Games, concerts, what have you. I have used SeatGeek to buy baseball tickets. I have used SeatGeek to buy hockey tickets. Hockey playoff time. You want to get on hockey playoffs, you can do that through SeatGeek. Concerts. Anything you could possibly want. SeatGeek is fantastic and really, again, analytically oriented. So you have a color-coded map. You want to know where to sit in whatever venue, uh, be it a concert, be it a game. You can figure out, well, this section would normally be the place that I would sit. But uh, it turns out that I could sit here at a bargain price. This is the way to go. And SeatGeek makes it really, really easy to use the free SeatGeek app. And how about this? If you download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah. You'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase to anything that you could possibly want. I had a listener of the podcast write me and say that he used the promo code and that his ticket was, I think, $21. I believe he paid $1 for his ticket, uh, which is fantastic to a Kansas City Royals game. So that's pretty cool. Pay, go pay $1 for your $21 ticket. That's awesome. Again, download the free SeatGeek app. Enter the promo code Jonah today. You'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Quick programming notes that you will find me at CBS Sports HQ, where I do video all the time talking about baseball. You can check that out. Just Google CBS Sports HQ. You can navigate to it uh, via CBSSports.com, CBS Sports app. You can get there that way. You can watch on Apple TV. A billion, zillion, trillion ways to listen and watch my uh, takes on baseball, as well as RJ Anderson and Mike Exisa and Matt Snyder and Dane Perry and the whole crew at uh, CBS Sports, we are bringing you the takes constantly, so check that out. And also, sportsnet.ca, you can read my stuff all season long, primarily Blue Jays, uh, but some other stuff as well. So do check that out, too. And do check out today's edition of the Joan Carey Podcast. It is with Chris Spire. Enjoy. Jonah Carey is on. 
Well, it's a pleasure on this lovely, uh, what, morning? Morning. Still morning. To be talking to uh, former Major Leaguer three-time All-Star, Chris Spire. Chris, how's it going? Hey, doing well, Jonah. Thanks. Thanks for the call. So we had a chance to meet in person at uh, this uh, Expos banquet, which was uh, fascinating stuff for charity. Uh, Thanks to Perry G for setting that up for DIPG. Uh, Very, very cool. Lots of folks uh, turned out. Did you get a chance to to, uh, really spend some time with any of, uh, whether it's your ex-teammates or guys from different eras and uh, chat? I'm always curious about that one. Guys get together for kind of the rubber chicken circuit if there's – you know, the shooting of the breeze. I all remember that time in 1978 or what have you. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, it was great. I had a chance to uh, reconnect. I hadn't seen Larry Parrish in a while. We run across uh, paths as we were both coaching, but uh, he was normally in the American League. I was in the National League. And uh, so we we had a chance to hook up. Ellis Valentine uh, ran into Timmy Raines and, uh, and Warren Cromartie and you know what it's like when guys get together. It's a, you know, we reminisce and, uh, you know, about situations and, you know, our abilities, you know, are become a lot better than what maybe what they were. But <laughs> no, we had, we had just a bunch of laughs. And it's always great because, you know, we just don't get that opportunity to see each other that much. You know, our circles, uh, you know, are, are different. And so when it, when we do get together, uh, you know, it's always fun. Well, it's interesting, too, because obviously, you know, it's long past your playing days, but, you know, people can change as people, and I mean that in the best possible way, and uh, I just Mm -hmm. did a podcast recently with Ellis, and boy, oh boy, I mean, knowing what I know about back then, what he was like, not that he he was certainly a kind person, people liked him a lot, but obviously he lived a different lifestyle versus, you know, 30 years sober and and helping the community or whatever, it's quite fascinating to check in on people, be like, oh, wow, that's what you're up to now, really cool. No, I know. It's just such a, you know, uh, you see him and, uh, and you understand, you know, the, the, the demons and the battles that he went through. And then you see him on the other side of it yeah. and, you know, the peace that he has and, and all the good that he's doing, you know, it's just, uh, it's just so rewarding and, and, you know, just gives us a, a sense of, uh, tremendous gratitude. No question. So I want to talk about your journey a little bit because I find it really interesting. Yeah. First of all, you went to the same high school as, uh, Willie Stargell, which right away, you know, your cool factor, maybe his cool factor. Well, no, cool I factors did, no, I did not go to the same. Oh, place. okay. I missed, missed my mistake. Yeah. No, no, no. It's the same city. Uh, uh, he went, he went to Encinal High School. Yep. Uh, I think Jimmy Rollins also went there. Uh, and I went to Alameda High, which was on the other side of the island of Alameda. Uh, so, uh, but we were in the same, in the same city. Gotcha. And, you know, and yeah. it's, it's interesting to your path because um, you drafted in 68 and, uh, you know, you go to UCSB and you're going to try to mm-hmm. make it there. And, uh, you know, it seems like your first break or not your first break, but kind of an opportunity occurred in Canada of all places. Take me through that a little bit with uh, your former coach and going up to Stratford, which is <clears throat> typically known for a Shakespeare festival. And that's where you kind of cut your teeth a little bit uh, yeah. you know, playing at a higher level or at a different level anyway. Yeah, it was funny. I remember uh, in high school, I was drafted. Uh, I was drafted out of high school by the Washington Senators, probably in like the fifteenth round. And I remember, um, you know, sitting down with a scout, and you know, they're they're doing this little negotiation, and they said, uh, you know, we'll offer you eight thousand dollars to sign. Hmm. 
So uh, I'm sitting there with my dad and my dad leans over and says, if they offer you 10, go ahead and take it. <laughs> so we went to $10,000 and they said, no, our final offer is eight. And uh, it was probably the best move of my life not to sign at that point with the Washington Senators and went on to Santa Barbara. And I had a, you know, just two great coaches at Santa Barbara. Uh, I was a freshman. I was playing varsity and I did really well. Um, and our head coach was Dave Gorey and our pitching coach was a, a guy named Rolf Shield, mm -hmm. who was a pitcher, uh, in the minor leagues with, uh, with the, with the Baltimore Orioles. And he had, you know, he coached this team up in, uh, in Canada. And, uh, he asked me if I'd like to go and I said, oh yeah, I want to go play. Uh, so, um, it was a, you know, a big break for me, um, because there was a scout up there. His name was Herb Hanna with the Giants that saw me up there and, you know, filled out his paperwork and, and sent it in. And, you know, I was lucky, you know, to, uh, at that time they had two drafts. They had a secondary draft in January for guys that had been drafted before. Yep. And that's when the Giants took me. So, um, uh, that started the, it started the process. And I have to imagine as you're going through the minor leagues, first of all, any kid is dreaming of the big leagues, no matter what. But this is your you know, more or less hometown team, Alameda, you know, in the Bay Area. And oh, by the mm -hmm. way, if you do crack the big leagues, you could play with Willie Mays and Willie McCovey. I cannot even imagine what that must have been like for a kid to think, oh, yeah, if I can make it to the show, then my parents can drive, you know, 30 minutes to watch me. And also Willie Mays and Willie McCovey. That's got to be absolutely Mind-boggling, sitting there and grinding through the minors and thinking, this is my end goal. As if the show wasn't exciting enough, this is what's at stake. Well, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I really, really didn't even think about that portion of it. Oh, wow. About getting there. Yeah, I mean, I you know, of course, you know, you always have the goal of, you know, doing well. But, uh, you know, I was, shoot, I was 19 years old, yeah. you know, and uh, I, you know, I was... You know, I had a big break uh, early when I first signed. You know, they sent me a contract to to show up to spring training on March. It was like March 10th to show up with a with a low low A minor league team. And I saw on the on the on the letter that they sent that the Triple A and Double A teams were showing up March 5th. Hmm. In my mind, I go, you know what? I'm going to show up March 5th and maybe they'll let me work out for a week with double A and triple A. So nice. those two managers will get a chance to see me. So I show up uh, March 5th and with the thought of, you know, these guys getting a chance to see me. And the guy goes, well, you're not supposed to be here for another week. And I said, well, hey, I'm here. I'm not going home, you know, just, you know, let me work out. So sure. I did work out. And, you know, when it came down to, you know, settling uh, who's who's going to go where, the double-A manager liked me. And, and uh, he said, no, he's going to go with me. He's not going to low-A. So that right there, I you know, I skipped two, you know, two levels. And I was fortunate to, you know, start my minor league career in double-A. So, uh that was, you know, a huge break and I, and I did well, you know, I made the all-star team. And so, 
you know, the next step was, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, the next step for me, I, I know I can play in the big leagues because I've seen what they have up there. Sure. And a, and a cocky kid, you know, um, they sent me a triple-A contract after that year. And uh, I had a, uh, I had a chance to meet the manager of the Giants uh, during the Instructional League following our double-A uh, season. Yep. And uh, when I got my triple-A contract, I called the manager up and I said, listen, Charlie, I know what you got. Just invite me to spring training with the major league club, and I'll be your opening day shortstop. And he he loved the the cockiness, and he invited me, and and I made the team. And that's when I realized, oh my God, I'm playing with Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Juan Marichal, Gaylord Perry. Yeah. So, oh my God, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, it was a great a great. Uh, a great journey. Well, and it's interesting too because, you know, you got easy for a kid to think of it that way. But I was struck. I, you know, went back and read some quotes, and it was talking about when you first came up, and you know, frankly, what a keener you were that you worked that hard that you came in early, cracked the team and all that, and then your teammates started responding. And this quote, just there's two that I really love. Um, one is from a little bit later, so it's from '72. And it's from McCovey. And, uh, you know, the season didn't go well, but it went really well for you. And he says, after the season we had last year, I didn't think they could get 26 minutes of good film because the Giants played poorly, but you had your best season. And then he says, thank goodness for Chris Fire. That was one. Mm. And then the other one was, in 71, it's easy to lose interest when the club isn't going well. But I'll tell you, I'm all excited this year. And I have to say it's because of the kid's shortstop. What I like best about him is that he isn't cocky. That's from Willie Mays. I don't oh, know. Geez. Yeah, and I guess you didn't read these press clippings at the time, but gosh, it's 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 so cool to think, you know, that you could be influenced by these guys who you know have experience and greatness and all this stuff, but that you can make an impact too. That you know, as as a good solid player coming in and just working hard, you can impact the way that older guys who might be otherwise jaded would think about their roles. I, I would think, you know, obviously you didn't know it at the time necessarily, but it's sort of a cool thing about baseball that rookie enthusiasm can rub off that way. Well, it does, you know, and I think, you know, you you, you kind of understand a little bit more when, you know, like I said, after my playing days, you know, I stayed in baseball and I was coaching. Yep. And, you know, you, you, you start talking about a makeup of a team. And, you know, Dusty Baker was always big about, about uh, having, you know, having some youth on the team. Because it does, it pushes those guys, you know, that, that the veterans that, you know, they, they understand the deal, but that enthusiasm, uh, that, that youth brings, it's, it kind of, it kind of pushes, uh, the veterans a little bit. You know, it's just a resurgence, uh, you know, uh, a shot in the, in the arm. It's just something that, uh, you know, all good teams usually have, you know, a good mix of, of veterans and youth uh, because, you know, they both, they both work, you know, to better each other. You know, the youth with their exuberance, you know, helps push the veterans and the veterans with their knowledge, you know, maybe helps tone down sometimes the that over exuberance of youth. So, um, yeah, it was, like I said, I was, I was a kid in the candy store. I was loving life. It's interesting, too, because, you know, I'm somebody who studies numbers. I write about numbers for a living and all that. 
and you look at some of your numbers in those early days, and this is the kind of modern skill set that people are after, that you were very, very happy to take a walk, that you were going to work the count in your favor, and either you get something that you can hammer on 2-1 or 3-1 or whatever, or you trot on right. down to first base. And with that came, particularly in your best season in 72, some strikeouts, that even though you were not a big power hitter, walks and strikeouts were okay because that was the cost of working the count. Did you get any, even though you were really coming into your own almost right away, did you get any pushback about all that? Because I don't imagine that in 1972, the proverbial putting your bat on your shoulder was all that appreciated. It seemed like that was in a game of aggression back then, and it was put the ball in play, do this, do that, as opposed to, you know, I'm going to walk and or strike out 174 times. Well, I don't think the, the strikeouts, I you know, those things I hated. Right. You know, it's it's completely different that you know today, but sure. back then it was, you know, my whole philosophy in hitting was uh, I knew what my strengths were, and my strength was the inner half of the plate, and usually something straight. <laughs> uh, and so I was big about trying to get my pitch to hit, and if it wasn't there then, you know, I'm taking it. And, you know, if it got to that point now, I'm, you know, before I get to two strikes, I'm still looking for that ball middle in. And if I don't get it now with two strikes, now I got to, you know, I got to battle. Yeah. Well, you know, to, with pitchers, you know, and they knew my weaknesses, you know, you throw that good hard slider that's on the outside part of the plate that maybe just moves off the plate. And I, you know, I have to, you know, I got to, I have to swing because I'm, you know, I got two strikes on me and, you know, that was, you know, that was my nemesis. Uh, so, you know, I was a, I was an aggressive hitter. If I got my pitch, if I didn't get it, I'm not swinging. And, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think I ever had any pushback and to say, Hey, you need to be more aggressive. Hey, you need, you know, but, uh, looking back on it, I would say, yeah, I needed, I probably needed to expand my zone a little bit Mm. because, uh, you know, it it would have, I think it would have helped me a little bit more to, you know, cut down on the strikeouts, uh, and, and just widen my zone earlier in the count. But, uh, you know, hindsight's 2020. Sure. Um, you played those early years in Candlestick Park. Uh, I got a chance to attend a game at Candlestick Park as a fan right before the stadium closed. That place was wild, man. I mean, it was, it was, uh, yeah, multi-sport and all that. There were a lot of stadiums like that, but Three Rivers, Riverfront, all those parks did not have the elements the way that Candlestick did. Uh, do you ever kind of wake up in a cold sweat at 3 a.m. and think about the game, you know, with the blustery wind and the minus 10 wind chill? Because I, I, I'm picturing that park and the havoc that it could wreak and what a, what an unusual place it was to play baseball. How was that for you? I mean, obviously you'd be happy to play anywhere early in your career. But as you're adjusting and you become a veteran, how did you handle the elements of that park, and what do you remember about it? Well, you know what I remember most is that when I first came up, I never once heard the veterans. I'm talking about Mays, McCovey, all these guys. I never once heard them uh, say anything negative about, you know, the conditions. I really don't remember them saying anything. That ballpark was probably no it wasn't probably it was it was the worst place to play baseball in when that wind was howling and that cold was there it was just 
it was just very, very difficult to play baseball in. But I never heard them do that. And we almost tried to use that a little bit to our advantage because guys coming in on the road, you know, off the road, coming to Candlestick Park, their thought process was, hey, let's get these three games over as quickly as we can and get the heck out of there. And, you know, it was, you know, they, it was just a negative uh, part of, of the visiting clubs coming into Candlestick, you know, but, uh, and that place was, it was wild. I saw, you know, some of the craziest plays happen uh, because of the wind and, and, and situations there. It was, uh, it could be quite hilarious. Well, I have to imagine for a shortstop, particularly backpedaling on a pop-up and it's you and the left fielder going for it and or the center fielder, it's it's just got to be an adventure over there. Is it just basically, okay, close your eyes and pray? Or, you know, do you have a methodology for, all right, if it's uh, 4 p.m., the wind is going to swirl this way in a hurricane, and if it's this, you know, 5 p.m., it's going to go that way? Well, there, yeah, that's just it. There wasn't any, there wasn't any uh, patterns to the wind <laughs> at all. Yeah. I remember being at the plate and – you know, having to squint my eyes so bad because the wind was blowing straight in my face. And then you look at the flags and all the flags are blowing out. So there was such a swirl factor. And again, it was, you had no idea which way it was going. So you just kind of try to put yourself in the vicinity of where you thought the ball was going to be. <laughs> and then it was, you know, it's so funny because you always are taught that, you know, any ball that's going out towards the outfield, the infielder's going back on, that the outfielder has the right of way and he has, you know, the call. Sure. And I was all, you know, always going back going, okay, I hope I hear somebody call this. I hope I hear somebody call this. So call me off. But, uh, like I said, it's, uh, it, it, it created, uh, so many situations that, you know, as a as a player, when you hit the ball in the air, you didn't take it for granted it was going to get caught. Oh, I love it. Fascinating. Um, I also wanted to ask you, there's a theory in sports about, well, I mean, there's also the theory about teaching that those who can't teach, right? And so, you know, by if you flip it around, if you have guys like Mays and McCovey, people used to say the same, same thing about guys like Michael Jordan or whatever, and you ask them, mm -hmm. hey, what's the process? You know, what do you do to get ready or whatever? And, Michael Jordan, or maybe Willie Mays, I don't know, you can tell me, say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I see the ball and I hit it 500 feet. I have no idea what you're talking about. I take off and I dunk from the foul line. Did you, were you able to learn anything from guys of that stature and that ability, or was it they were just super, so supernaturally gifted that you just sat and watched BP and just enjoyed the show? Because especially when you became a coach afterwards, you know how to teach. Can guys like that teach, or are they just almost too good to do it? Well, I think sometimes, uh, you know, you get, you know, mixed, you know, mixed, mixed signals, I think, uh, sometimes I, I learned a lot from, from Mays and McCovey and it was, it was more on, uh, on, you know, the pitching yep. and, and, and situations and how they're going to go about maybe attacking me and that kind of, uh, knowledge of, uh, uh, you know, the, the particular picture that we might be facing, you know, this guy's going to do this to you. He's been, then he's going to try to get you out here, uh, and give you a bit, you know, an idea of, of maybe what to expect. Now, when it came down to technique and, and theory, um, you know, those two were so, so gifted yeah. that, um, 
I, you know, I watched and I, I used to, I really used to like to watch how Mays uh, hit the outside pitch or hit the outside breaking ball. Hmm. And he was, you know what? He was so strong, his hands and things that I realized I can't do that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not able to take that pitch, you know, and, and hit it like that. I'm going to have to, I need to change and I need to do it. I need to take that pitch. And instead of hitting, like Mays could take that pitch, uh, an outside pitch, and he could pull it down the left field line. I mean, he was so yeah. strong, he can go out and get go around it. You know, I had to learn to, to wait on that pitch a little bit, you know, and to take it to right field. And so by watching those guys, it was like, okay, they can do that. I can't, I can't even attempt that because I physically, I'm not able to do that. So from a learning standpoint, it was good because it, it taught me that, okay, you can't do it this way. How, how can you be successful at it? Well, you need to learn how to do it that way. And, uh, so yeah, they can teach. Gotcha. <laughs> Um, and then you ultimately end up getting traded to Montreal. And this is, you know, right, uh, prime years, late 20s, what have you. And you come in, and this is a team on the rise. You know, 28, yeah. 29, you're one of the oldest players on the roster in some ways with Valentine and Dawson and Carter and those guys. Uh, take me through that. I mean, was there culture shock for you, you know, setting up camp in a different country? Did you take to it right away? Uh, you know, what was it like with that team that all of a sudden you go from being one of the kids to being one of the veterans? There must have been quite a few changes to process at one time. Yeah, it was. You know, it really was. You know, you know, for me, you know, being a, a California kid, basically, yeah. and, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden getting, you know, shipped over to uh, or traded to Montreal, it was it was like if I, it was like me moving to Europe, hmm. you know, and it was, you know, the one thing that, that, that helped was that, you know, was the number one, the city of Montreal, you know, and how they love the expos, yes. you know, they, they, they made you feel really, really welcome. And then the team, you know, the guys that were there, um, you know, that was, uh, it, that part of it really, really helped. And, you know, I have to think, uh, when I got there, you know, I had no place, you know, I didn't know where I was going to be living, no place to stay. And, um, Dick Williams, the manager and a couple of his coaches, they lived up in St. Adele. Yeah. Up north of the city. They rented these, you know, little house and those guys and they said, you should check this place out. And that's how I found out about St. Adele. Hmm. Uh, you know, and again, it was, you know, it's an hour from the ballpark. You know, a lot of the people were staying downtown uh, or on the west side. And, you know, I ended up, you know, living in that little French ski resort area <laughs> and just fell in love with it. Wow. Just loved it. And, uh, you know, we ended up. Ended up staying up there, you know, full time, moved my family, moved everything because, you know, in baseball, I was just tired of moving, you know, three or four times a year with the family. Sure. And, you know, I had some young kids and, uh, it was, it was really difficult, you know, you're moving three times a year. So it was, it was hard. So we decided because I, you know, we loved it so much up there. We said, let's, let's enjoy this, you know, let's, let's stay here full time and, 
and and make Montreal and St. Adele at home. And you know what? It was probably some of the best times of my life living up there. I had two children up there, uh, you know, born up there. So uh, it was great. I just loved it up there. I think it was Rogers maybe who was talking to me because I had a long conversation with him uh, mm-hmm. a while back about the the guys who did stay year round. First of all, it was more common back then than it was like with the nineties players and so forth. But even then there were only a few guys, but everybody got into like winter hockey and, and, you know, stuff like that. Did you, obviously you had to raise young kids and so forth, but were there, was there opportunity to get together with guys who did stay year round, you know, in December, January, or was it for the most part, okay, baseball's over. I'm going to, I'm going to hang out with the family and just wait it out until February. Well, because I lived so far, yeah, you know, so. like I said, I think I think Carter was the only guy that stayed up there. I oh, think. Carter, I'm pretty okay, sure yeah. he might have been the only guy that stayed up there a, a little bit. Yeah, uh, and he was on the west side. Yeah, and uh, you know, I started to uh, you know accumulate some friends outside of baseball, mm-hmm. and uh, I met this you know I met this one guy that was a uh, a trainer at a gym and. Uh, we got into cross country skiing mm. and I had to go to the expos uh, because in our contract, it states that, you know, your contract could be null and void if you get injured skiing. It's <laughs> just the word ski. It doesn't say downhill. It doesn't say anything. Sure. I said, you know what? If I'm staying up here full time, I need to stay in shape. And cross country skiing is, you know, uh, something I really want to do, yeah. and I want I want to want to make sure that I, that you're okay with that. And they said, sure, we'll make an addendum. Well, I find out because my our cross country skiing wasn't going on some golf course and just putzing around. <laughs> we were up in the up in the bush, coming down these little narrow trails, yeah. and it was yeah, you know, pretty hairy, you know, especially a guy that hadn't done it before. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the injury factor, uh, is, uh, can be high, but, you know, I was fortunate. I didn't get hurt. And, uh, but I, I was probably in the best shape of my life. It was, it was just so much fun. And the beauty out there is just phenomenal. Um, I believe, as a Montrealer, I understand and believe it. Um, Dick Williams, yeah. I want to chat with about him a little bit because, uh, for some, yeah. you know, a Hall of Fame manager in his own right. Uh, but such an interesting guy. And again, it, you kind of go across the road. And I've like had conversations with Crow about him and Dawson and Rogers. As you can guess, Rogers didn't love him. But you know, you go no. you, you go around, and and he everybody reacted differently to him. That he was to use the vernacular, he was a hard ass. He was a red ass. He was all that stuff. But he was also a great manager. What were your interactions with him? Because he was certainly a smart guy. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe he was easy. Maybe he wasn't. I guess it depends on the player. You know what? I look back on it now, and uh, number one, Dick hated pitchers. Yeah, just yeah. <laughs> you know, he's he's a, he's the typical you know uh, position player. You know, on most teams, you know, you have your factions. You got your guys that you know that are your position players. And then you got the pitchers. You know, and uh, Dick, you know, pitchers can drive you crazy, as you know. Yes. Uh, so Dick, yeah, he wasn't a fan of of you know, pitchers, but he was, he was really good. You know, the guys that, that, that played every day that, you know, busted their butts, you know, and knew they were, you know, 
you know, knew they were trying hard and he kind of, he kind of just left you alone, hmm. you know, and, and let you do that. But I remember when we were playing and, you know, they, even back then, you know, I started thinking like a manager, you know, and trying to figure, okay, this situation, blah, blah, blah. He would do things that used to baffle me. Hmm. I would go, what the heck is he thinking here? Hmm. And it worked. Wow. It worked. And I went, oh, my God, this guy, he's, he's, he sold the soul, his soul to the devil. I don't know how this worked. <laughs> I don't know how this, but it did. And you know what? He he was probably, and I look back now, and I never really never thought about it, but he'd be in his office, and he'd be writing, and he would have these charts, and he would be looking at things. And I had, at that time, you know, and this is in the 70s, mm. you know, nobody did anything like that that they're doing today. No. He was doing that. And there was there was a method to what he did. I mean, he was prepared uh, probably more than most managers at, at that time were. Uh, and uh, and I could see why, you know, he won. You know, it's because of the preparation and, and, and that he put before, you know, each and every game. Yeah, it seems like Earl Weaver was kind of the guy who was the firebrand, but also really smart. But it feels like Williams was cut right. from the same cloth in many ways. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it was great. You know, uh, like I said, the, and I, you know, you miss that today. Yep. You know, we don't, we don't get that anymore because of replay. You know, you can't run out from the dugout, <laughs> you know, jump and scream and yell at the umpires and, and do all that. That's, it just doesn't happen too much anymore. And I miss that part. I just used to love when those guys would do that. I, uh, as a native Montrealer, as an unabashed Expos fan growing up and all that stuff, I feel obligated because you started to touch on this about the way that, uh, people embraced baseball in Montreal. And I think it gets lost, especially if you're, you know, maybe a younger listener because the team, of course, hasn't been there for 14 years and we know that the right. 10 years were really bad. Uh, but take me through, let's say 81, for instance, when the playoffs finally Ooh. come to Montreal. And by the way, you lit it yeah. up in that LDS against the Phillies. What the atmosphere was like in that ballpark and in that city when things were going well? Well, you know that that's it. You know, with most with most cities, yeah. you know, they're going to be the cities are going to be really supported if you're winning. And you know, everybody knew that Montreal was basically a hockey town. You know, and that, you know, they're, they're Canadians, you know, that's that's their deal. And we knew up until, you know, May or so that, uh, you know, we're going to do well, uh, but the people will start to come as soon as hockey season's over. <laughs> and then, you know, and, and then it happened, you know, hockey season is over and we're doing really well. And the, and the people are starting to come out. Now, the fans, you know, I think in Canada overall, Maybe weren't as boisterous in the beginning as a lot of say other other stadiums, but what made it great was that Olympic Stadium. It just echoed and echoed and echoed in there, and it was phenomenal atmosphere to play in. It was just great. That's really cool. I like it a lot. So um, you uh, end up staying with the Expos in, uh, up until '84, and then you bounce around a little bit. 
And you end up back yeah. in San Francisco. And, and um, especially in 87, you had that one more real solid year. But I'm always interested in yeah. general about the idea of the, of the coming home factor. The Expos themselves, by the way, had that so many times. They brought Rusty back toward the end. Carter came back right. in the 90s. Reigns came back at the end of his career. What's that like for mm-hmm. you to uh, to circle back and, you know, again, you're the Alameda kid and here you come back to the Giants to uh, finish off a 19-year – how many guys can say that? A 19-year career. Uh, what did that mean for you to be able to play it out over there? Oh, that was uh, – you know, I couldn't have asked for a, a better – you know, better ending to my career. You know, I, when you're drafted and you come up through an organization, uh, it, it's, it kind of becomes your family. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I left on bad terms with San Francisco. Uh, and, but then I had a chance to, you know, rekindle that relationship at the end. And, you know, we, it was, uh, it was just like coming home. It was so much fun. You know, we had such a good team and, and, and great teams there at the end too. Yeah. That, uh, you know, 87 we were in play, 88, uh, and then 89 was the World Series, you know, and all that. So it was, uh, you know, for me, it was, it was just, uh, it was a blessing. I was just really, really blessed. Just to be a, a little slightly more serious tone for a second. Um, that 89 World Series, and, and, uh, you did not end up playing in that World Series, but of course still part of the, you know, organization in general. That, that earthquake, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that if it happened now in the age of social media, it would just be, people would just keep talking about it for months, for years afterwards. And it's not that it wasn't talked about then, because it was this unbelievable and frightening event. But I, I think again, for the younger folks, maybe they aren't aware. This is almost 30 years gone now. Uh, right. You know what? What was the feeling there? That that had to be just terrifying and surreal, and the timing and, and all that just it would be so weird. I have to imagine. Uh, yeah, it was it was uh, scary. I've been through, you know, I've been through a few earthquakes living yeah. in California, some pretty big ones. Uh, this one though was, uh, you know, I got to, I got to really feel and see this thing, you know, ground level firsthand. Yeah. And, um, it was funny. I was sitting, it was getting, we were getting ready, almost ready to, to have the national anthem. And I'm sitting there, the Gatlin brothers, uh, were going to sing the national anthem. And I'm standing there with, with Larry Gatlin. And we're standing right in the, near the dugout. And we're just kind of talking. And all of a sudden, it sounds as if everyone in the stadium, everyone, is stamping their feet. Huh. It sounds like they're all stamping their feet. There's such a loud, loud rumble. Hmm. And we look up and nobody's doing anything. And then we look up and I look up and see the light standards. They're swaying back oh. and forth. Oh. And I look at Larry, and then there's some guys that are running in the outfield getting loose before the game. And I kid you not, it looked as if they were running on the ocean. Hmm. It looked like swells were coming through the outfield grass. And these guys were falling and stumbling because the ground was moving like waves. And I looked at Larry, and I said, Larry, just relax. Uh, We're right in the middle of an earthquake. 
<laughs> and there was a there was a gate down the right field line that took you out uh, to basically you go through that gate and get get out to see uh, uh, the clubhouse and take you outside. Larry said, and I. I I don't know if I can quote the words. You can here. swear all you want in this podcast, no problem. Okay, he said, "Fuck this." <laughs> he ran, he ran straight down the right field line, went in the gate, and I to this day I have not seen him since. Wow, I don't know, I don't know where he is. But then everybody, you know, at that time, you know, we were really concerned. You know, this is an older stadium. And everybody had family there. Yeah. And we're worried that the, the stadium is going to collapse oh, and gosh. crush everybody. And so we're all looking for our families and we're, we're telling them, you know, come here, come here, come down. And the families were getting down so we can get them out on the field and at least get out, out from underneath, you know, the main part of the stadium and get out on the field, uh, away from uh, any of those uh, structures that, that might collapse, you know, but fortunately it didn't. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, fortunate for everybody involved for sure. Uh, you mentioned, right. you mentioned family and, uh, I, I had Ken Hill on, um, recently and he mm. talked about his son, you know, a terrific collegiate quarterback. And we got into the idea of having, uh, offspring who are athletically gifted and living and dying yeah. with their successes. And of course, your son Justin pitched in the big leagues and was quite successful pitching in the big leagues. Before we get to that, by the way, I have to read this quote because this is another great quote, but then I'll ask you about being the father of a major leaguer. Um, mm-hmm. he was 10 and it was 84. This is your last word at the Expos and the manager was Bill Verdon. You and Verdon clashed and Verdon, uh, took away playing time and in favor of some guys right. who were not all that good. And, uh, Justin was 10 years old at the time and this is the best quote ever. He said, I'm going to miss all my, 10 years old, I'm going to miss all my friends, the house, and the school. He said when asked about leaving his home in St. Adele. I'm not going to miss Bill Verdon. Fantastic, first <laughs> of all. Um, may Bill rest in peace, by the way. But, um, yeah, I love that yeah. about Justin. But, um, yeah, you know, we, I talked to Kenny about it, and he said, wow, and he was, you know, an all-star and a terrific player and played on a World Series team and all that stuff. And he said, nothing, nothing compared to watching Kenny Hill, to watching Ken Jr., you know, go up against elite talent as a collegiate quarterback. What was that like for you? You know, you played 19 years in the big leagues, but here comes one of your own, your progeny on the field. Is that less nerve-wracking, more nerve-wracking? Do you feel powerless? How does that go? Because that has to be such a, a trippy experience as a parent. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, you get a little sense of it when you coach. Yeah. A little sense because you realize, you know, you've, you've worked the guys, you, you know, you've, try to coach them to and then then you got to let go and you have you have really no control over anything right now yeah but then you multiply that by a thousand because it's your son and you sit there and it you're on pins and needles and you know you just god you just want him to do so well mm. and it's it's hard it really is hard now here's another scenario that is probably the worst that you can have. I'm the third base coach. <laughs> and my son is pitching against 
my team. Oh wow, gee. <laughs> and I have the and I have the winning run on second base. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. And so in my mind, okay, am I going to send this guy <laughs> if we get a base hit, or do I hold him up? And I realized, well, my son's name is not on my paycheck. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I, I had that scenario. Fortunately, my son struck struck the guy out, <laughs> and I was never put in that, you know, that, that spot where I actually have to send in the winning run, and my son walks off the field as a losing pitcher. But that is a bad situation. Oh, boy, in. I can't imagine. And, of course, if there's a close play at the plate, you know, and if the guy's thrown out or whatever, I mean, it might be one of the only times ever that the third base coach is going to have to get up on the podium and answer questions. Is What were you thinking? Yeah. And is that, that's, that's not fun at all. To, to, uh, visualize. No, no. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you, too, uh, you know, you coached as recently as the last couple of seasons. Of course, you were with Dusty uh-huh. a couple of times. And I'm just curious about the modern game versus, uh, you know, what it was like. Heck, going back to 71, 72, what are the biggest changes that you've noticed in, uh, what, 40-odd years of being in baseball, more, 50 years, really, of being in organized baseball in one form or another, uh, from, the, from the beginning of it to where you were as recently as last year? Um, I think it starts, I think it starts, uh, it starts earlier than, you know, our major league um, time when we get up to the big leagues. Yeah. Um, it, it starts earlier because I think, you know, back then, uh, and again, I, I'm dating myself, but this is how it was. Uh, you know, we learned situations. We learned uh, things by doing them. Uh, today, I think everything is coached. Everything is uh, told. Uh, every play that's done, it's, it's, it's basically almost robotic. Hmm. Where before, you know, we had to, you, you, you know, you got this fabulous brain and you had to, you had to input the, you know, all these things in, into your computer and kind of by situations, by, by, uh, experience, you know, you started to learn these things. You learned them, uh, by experience in them. And I think the, I think kids, uh, lose that because they're they're taught so much. Hmm. You know, every single pitch is called by a coach. Every single play is done. You know, by you know by a coach. You know, you're told what to do. And you know, I wasn't brought up in that era. You know, the, this new era. You know, we were we were taught. We were we learned how to play. We learned situations just because of by by playing the game. Uh, and today. Um, you know, it's gotten, you know, the analytics, all that stuff is, you know, it, there's a place. Um, a lot of the analytics and a lot of the different things that are used today, I think we, I, you know, the pendulum has shifted and it's gone, you know, to this extreme. And a lot of things are good. You know, the shift sure. has proved, you know, has proved successful, you know, and you know, people are, you know, using that, you know, an awful lot. And it, it is successful. Uh, those things, you know, there's some good, good things about it. But the things that I, that I miss, and I think that I'd like to see maybe swing back, 
is that ability of players to think for themselves a little bit. I remember I had a situation. I was managing an A-ball, and it was during spring training. And, you know, everybody, and even today, people will they'll harp on the base running. They'll always go, gosh, you know, when you go to spring training, everybody's one of the goals in spring training is we need to get better on our base running. We need to get better on our base running. Well, I had a situation in spring training, and our guys were, you know, just kind of screwing up. So we started the next game. And normally when I, when I managed in the minor leagues, I coached third base. Yep. So we start the game and I'm on the bench and I told the first base coach, don't go out there, stay here. Huh? So I played a whole week without any coaches out there hmm. to direct the players. Just let them play, let them look, let them check the outfield depths, let them, let them make the decision going first to third, scoring on a base hit, and it was amazing wow. how fast they learned. Hmm. Yes. So those are the types of things I think, you know, that, uh, you know, we – has changed. Everything is coached. You know, they're all pretty much told, you know, what to do, when to do it. And uh, – but uh, for anybody that coaches out there uh, – might might want to try that one for a while and see how your guys do. Interesting. Well, I like that very much as a as a coaching and managerial philosophy, and I wonder if that'll stick. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder if the next generation. It's always interesting too because it feels like managers were more removed from general managers before than they are now. That there's kind of an organizational philosophy that if Dave Roberts is the manager of the Dodgers, Dave Roberts is a very very smart baseball man. But gosh, look who's in the front office. It's a murderer's row with Friedman and Farhan Zaidi and all these people. You can't help but, you know, bestow that expertise uh, even directly into the clubhouse. And so, I, you know, I wonder if we might see a shift, if, you know, there could be a, a little bit of a culture change at some point and, and the front offices do back off and they do say, all right, you know, we've got these tendencies or whatever, but you know what? It's your show. You do your thing. Uh, because it seems like, we, uh, as you said, we've swung quite a bit from having all that brain power in the front office to that brain power is manifesting itself for better or for worse in the clubhouse. Well, I think it's, I think the, I think the dam's broken. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think, I think it's breached. Uh, you know, you look at the guys today and it, it's funny you mention that because I remember, you know, the general manager was a, you know, he had an office. Yeah. And, we never saw our general manager hmm. unless he was going to come on a, on a plane trip, you know, to watch the team. Uh, he never was in very seldom. Did he ever come down into uh, the clubhouse? If he did, then you knew something was going on. There was trouble hmm. and he had to have a meeting, but it was, there was a separation there, you know, and, you know, if he wanted to talk to you, he called you up to his office. And uh, today it's different. Uh, these guys are, shoot, uh, I've been on some teams where the general manager has a locker, you know, in the coaching Oh, room. boy. Wow. Huh. You know, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're a part of the team now. You know, they're, they're, they feel that, that much. And I know that there's a tremendous amount of input that the general manager, general managers have. 
in regards to how that club is going to be run. And I understand, you know, this is a, this is a, these are the players that, you know, he's, he's built his team with and they all feel like they, they should have some input on, on how those players are used. Hmm. And it's, uh, you know, I'm not in, then what, you know, what are you hiring the manager for? Right. You know, your manager, you know, and that's how it was, you know, here's your team. I hired you to, to, you know, do the best we can with this, what, what I've given you, you go do your thing. I think that they have, the dam is broken. I think there's a tremendous amount of input from general managers to the managers on who is playing, what the batting order is, and how they're going to be used. Now, you can get that information from a general manager, which there's nothing, nothing, I think everything, all the information you can get yep. is, is beneficial. But to put a, um, an adamant order in on this is what's going to happen, um, that can get a little dicey. Well, Chris, this has been a pleasure. Uh, always enjoy talking to, I'm, I'm just such a sucker for old stories about, uh, Oh yeah, games and, and all that good stuff. And I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, I hope our paths uh, cross again in the future. Thank you so so much. I hope so too. Thanks again. Take care.